I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop, where tonight we have Edith Grossman in conversation with Daniel Hahn as part of our World Literature series of events. Uh, just, just a quick word of introduction before we start. Edith is a renowned and award-winning literary translator from Spanish to English and one of the most important translators of Latin American literature of our time, having translated works by Gabriel García Márquez, Mario Vargas Llosa, Carlos Fuentes, Ariel Dorfman, amongst many others. Her translation of Don Quixote, published in 2003, is considered a masterpiece. She won the Penn Ralph Mannheim Medal for Translation in 2006 and the Spanish Institute Translation Prize uh, for 2008 for her translation of Antonio Molina's A Manuscript of Ashes. Her own book, Why Translation Matters, was published in 2010 and argues for the cultural importance of translation and for a more encompassing and nuanced appreciation of the translator's role. So we're delighted to have Edith here um, tonight, and delighted too that Daniel Hahn is in conversation with her. Daniel is a translator himself, with 30, 30 or so books to his name, translated from Spanish, Portuguese and French, some of which we have on the table over there. He's a former chair of the UK Translators Association, and currently a national programme director of the British Centre for Literary Translation. The talk's going to last for about 45 minutes or so. There'll be a chance for questions um, as, um, when, we, when, when it's finished. So if you have something you'd like to ask, please uh, think about it as we go along. So uh, once again, thanks for coming, and please join me in welcoming Edith Grossman and Daniel Hahn. Hi, is, good evening. Is that our fan club out there? Yes, you can hear so, Obviously, they don't, they don't know what they're missing in here, those people. They think they're having fun out there. They have no idea. You can go out and tell them afterwards what they missed. Um, it's lovely to see so many of you uh, on this lovely summer's day when you could otherwise, of course, be outside basking and eating ice cream. Um, when we were planning to bring, Kate and I were planning to bring Edie over, we did think summer is a much nicer time for someone to be visiting this country and we can travel around and take it to really nice places. So I hope you appreciate the great effort that we have gone to. You can see just how powerful BCLT is arranging this glorious summer weather for the end of May. I will try not to dwell on it because it's too depressing. Um, so we're going to be talking about translation, and I, I think we're going to sort of do two things. One is talk about translation generally and also talk about some of Edie's works uh, particularly. You've heard in that introduction some of the extraordinary uh, writers. She's translated some of the extraordinary books. Don Quixote. Um, kind of don't know where to start. Uh, Don Quixote, oh my God. Um, <laughs> it's Edith Grossman. Um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to do a kind of proper introduction because you've, you've heard the sort of, you've heard the kind of bio. I will just say one thing, which is uh, a couple of years ago, um, Edie and Santiago Don Caliolo won the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize for her translation of, of Red April. And in his speech, in his acceptance speech, um, he said, you know the way that translators are usually introduced or referred to as 
with, with reference to the person they translate. This is so-and-so, the translator of such-and-such. Well, he said, I am the writer who is translated by Edith Grossman. <laughs> so this is, this is, as well as being a, a fantastic translator of all of those great writers, it is also probably the closest we have to that sort of slightly oxymoronic thing, which is quite like a famous translator. It's, it's, it's sort of weird. Um, I want to begin by asking you a, a sort of big and slightly unreasonable question, which is, why do you translate? What do you get from it? Besides my living? Besides, besides, besides the, the vast remuneration that we all know translators receive for their work. Can, can you all hear me? Can you hear me? Uh, what do I get? I get... Um, I get several things. I'm not sure how many, but I'll start to talk about it, and you can count. Uh, I get the enormous pleasure of delving into writing by brilliant authors... Uh, I've been very lucky, and almost all the people I've translated have been wonderful, wonderful writers. And so living with their texts for the months, however many months it takes me to do the translation, is uh, sheer pleasure. Um, It also, uh, another reason is that it it gives me an opportunity to write every day. Um, I love writing, but I often can't face down the blank page. Uh, when I translate, I don't have a blank page to face down. It's already been filled by someone else. Um, Does this mean that you never have a kind of translator's block, or are there still days when you can't quite... You can't quite start. So. Oh, sure. There are, there are days when I know there is no point in my even turning the computer on because it, <laughs> nothing of value is going to happen. So those uh, are Not the, if you recognize that feeling. So those are the days uh, that I do one of my favorite things, which is to go to the movies in the middle of the day, which makes me feel as decadent as, as anything can be. This is in Manhattan, by the way, in case you're trying to imagine this. This is where... Oh, is it different in Manhattan? I don't know. I, I think going to the movies in the middle of the day in Manhattan sounds glorious. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. Then you walk out, and it's only four in the <laughs> afternoon, and there's the sunshine, because we get sun in New York. Um, <laughs> Unlike London, uh, we get sun in New York, and uh, the whole city is there waiting. Um, or I lie on my sofa and read novels, which is <laughs> another of my favorite things to do. Uh, so those are the days when I know it's not going to happen. I'm, uh, nothing is going to happen. But most of the time, I... I Work every day. I usually work seven days a week. And how do you, how do you describe what you do? If you say to someone, "I'm a literary translator," and they say, "Yeah, I sort of, I sort of get that." What, what really, what really does that mean? What is it? This thing you do. Yesterday, when I was in a cab to the train station, uh, I had a driver. Uh, whose accent I barely understood. And um, he said, well, are you here on business or on holiday? And I said, it's a little bit of both. 
He said, oh, what do you do? I said, I'm a translator. He said, really? He said, uh, uh, what do you translate? And I said, I translate literature from Spanish to English. He said, really, there are enough good books in Spanish? <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, at least as many as in English. You know, uh, yeah, there are some good books in Spanish. Well, at least 10 or 12. I at least 10 or 12 that I can think of, right, yeah. even without looking it up. Yeah. And uh, he said, so uh, what do you add when, when you're working? I said, I don't add anything. He said, well... Couldn't you say instead of he got into a car, he got into a green car? I said, no. I, could, I couldn't say that. He said, why not? I said, it's not honest. It's my responsibility not to add to what uh, the writer has. So um, it was one of, a very strange conversation, you know, I, I, because I didn't expect him to even ask that question, are there enough good books in Spanish? Mm-hmm. To justify it. So um, um, I've gone around in a circle, but that's how I'm going to answer your question. I have once been in a taxi and said I'm a translator, and the question I got back was from any language in particular? <laughs> I was thinking, we could stop and think about that for a moment. No, I'll translate from any of them. It doesn't matter. Anything to anything. I, don't, I, have, I have like Google and stuff, so it's really easy. But there must be a sense which there, are, there, there have to be people, and I say this because I know these people, to whom you have to explain why what you do is different from just being a human dictionary because you know loads of foreign words. You're doing something which is more than that. Do you have? I don't know the same people you know, Danny, because I, I, no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm, I'm kidding, but I'm serious. Because I, uh, I don't think I've ever had to explain that way what it is that I'm doing. Okay. I mean, I do talk about the fact that you don't do translation with uh, tracing paper, uh, that there is a creative, large creative component in it. But um, everybody sort of, un- anybody who knows about literature, anybody who reads novels, who reads poems, knows that a good number of the novels or poems that they've read have actually been translations. Some this thing has happened to them. It, it's, it's happened. They know that when they read Dostoevsky in English, uh, Dostoevsky wrote in Russian. So somebody did something to get that book into English. Um, yeah, so I, I haven't been involved in that kind of justification of what it is that I mm. do. I'll come back to that word, I think, because justification is interesting with regards to why translation matters, the book, because that does feel like you are justifying something. It feels like you're defending the profession against something. Oh, yeah, I was. So there is there is a sense that I, I, if you haven't read this book, read this book. It is on sale here. Um, it's fantastic. And, and I have, I've never, I think, read a book which I've underlined more things and written more exclamation marks in the margin, and um, it's it's really kind of you know it's it's full of stuff that will make you uh, think or angry or something, but it, but it feels like y- you are you are justifying something. You are, as it were, defending it against defending the profession and the art against an implied attack, an implied misunderstanding, a real attack, not implied. Right. 
and I think translation in particular and perhaps literature in general, I, I get the sense that it's under attack by publishers and it is under attack by reviewers who do not review translations. They don't know how to write a, a, a review. Um, I'm not quite sure if I can tell them exactly how, but there is the idea of dual authorship that the writer and the translator are both the authors of the translated book and they have to deal with the existence of the translator. I have read reviews in which it's only because the publication requires the name of the translator to be in the um, headline of the review that the name is ever mentioned. Never in the review is it indicated that this is in fact a translation although the reviewer is very happy to quote passages hmm. and indicate that this is, you know, beautifully written, uh, uh, very to the point. And it's as if this, this um, very important fact has been skipped over, which is that there was somebody who did that work. Hmm. So I, this, um, I have many goats in my house, uh, and sometimes my goat is gotten, and this really <laughs> gets my goat when the reviewer uh, it, it does not recognize the fact of the translation, and um, publishers become resistant. Uh, so I, hmm. That's sort of what I meant by justification. There is a sense that you have to explain, you have to argue for why... You have to argue with people who have this sort of shorthand. They think that they cannot really deal with this process. They can treat the book in the same way that a book was written in English. I'm, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to quote a sentence okay. of this. Uh, this will make you read the book if you haven't read the book. Talking about translation, talk about translations being reviewed. Reviewers, it seems to me that their inability to do so, reviewers reviewing translations, is a product of intransigent, intransigent dilettantism and tenacious amateurism, the menacing two-headed monster that runs rampant through the inhospitable landscape peopled by those who write reviews. <laughs> My editor said, are you sure you want to say that? This book is going to be reviewed. Well, I, I reviewed this book. I quoted that in my review, in fact. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, yes, you're not wrong, obviously. <laughs> obviously, this is true. Um, I want to talk about the, the process of translating, and I want to start from the. I'm start from the beginning. It's a good place to start. You sign up to translate a novel, the new Vargasiosa, the new whatever. What happens first? How do you start? Do you read through? Do you read through ten times? Do you research? Do you throw yourself in? Okay, uh, I never do research. <laughs> I, I operate on the assumption that everything the author wants me to know is already in the text, and I don't need to know much else. Um, if I'm, uh, on the other hand, if I'm doing a novel by Vargas Llosa and I've never heard of Peru, I, I very well might look it up on a map and see that Wikipedia. it's in Latin America yes. and not Peru, in the heart of Africa. Right. Yeah. Uh, but um, no, I normally don't do research. When I first started out, I never read the book through. I just started translating. Uh, and I decided 
I, I can't remember how far into my career, that it was a good idea to read the entire book. So I read the book, and then I what, start... Why, sorry, why, why is that? Why do you feel you need to have a, kind of a look at the whole thing? And I I think one of the reasons is that uh, if I am entering into the mind of the writer, uh, the writer knows how the book develops, and I should know as much as the writer does. Um, and I am I'm speaking, uh, uh, this tends to apply to um, fiction. Uh, poetry is a different matter uh, quite often. Mm-hmm. So you will read it through at least once, mm-hmm. so you have a sense of the whole thing, and then, and then what? And then I do my rough draft. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I'm much happier with hard copy and paper than I am with screens and electronic devices, and so I need to get something down that I've done. I need to get that first draft down. Um, and then start to revise that and, and edit that. And it really is a rough draft. Uh, things that I can't translate, I just leave in Spanish. I just get it all down mm-hmm. and then go back and begin the process of revising. Do you like that part of the process? The, the, Which one? The, 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 the <laughs> second part, the, the detail, the, the going over and over and changing. I, yeah. presume, that's, I presume that's a sort of... It's a micro-edit. You're moving commas around. It's syllable by syllable. It's, it's small things, right? Yeah. I, you know, in a, in a sense, the rough draft is the scut work. Yeah. And the real fun comes in deciding how this is going to read. So I, I like that editing part. I, I get a kick out of it. And what are you, what are you looking for? How, how do you know when you've got it? Uh, because it's due. I have to turn it in. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it, because it's Thursday, it's 12 uh, o'clock, uh, it must uh, be finished. <laughs> that's right. No, if I didn't have a due date, I might spend a very, very long time on a book. But um, I never turn things in late. Uh, so I always get things in on time. And um, I feel obliged to do that. Mm-hmm. It, um, so I could keep revising forever if it weren't for that I, I, were, uh, I was contracted to turn the book in by a certain time. But something like the, the translations of the Gongora you did, that was done, this is, this is a Renaissance poet if you haven't read, um, and this was done without a publisher. This was something which you did for yourself and you got a publisher afterwards. Uh, right, well, so, I was so on, was a, I, I, it was a grant. On, a, on I, the, the I, Guggenheim. I, right. So there was a point at which you were doing that without a kind of artificial constraint and you sat down and you tinkered with these poems. Right. Is, is there a point at which you think something like that? Do you think it's done, it's ready, it's as good as I'm going to get it in this lifetime? Yeah, um... As strong as the impulse is to keep revising and revising and revising forever, uh, there also comes a time when you kill whatever is going on in the text by tinkering with it too much. You, you smooth it out eventually. Yeah, right. And yeah. one of the things, uh, this book, you have it here, so let me mm. 
do let me show it to you. Uh, uh, Gongarin was a 17th century poet, and The Solitude is probably the most difficult poem ever written in any language, ever. It is remarkably complex. Um, so what were you thinking? First question, what, why on earth? <laughs> most difficult poem in the world, I know what I'm going to do. Because I have been thinking about this poem since I was in graduate school. Uh-huh. It's a poem that uh, simply intrigues me because it may be difficult, but it is absolutely gorgeous. It is some of the most beautiful poetry I have ever read. And, you know, and it, it was a... Um, it was a thing to do in order to master something immensely difficult and also to be able to say to myself, I really got it. I, in other words, I really figured out what Gongora was doing. And um, I had great pleasure working on that. I really did. If it were up to you and there weren't any publishing economics involved, would you just translate poetry? Yes. Yes, I would. I've told this story before. I love translating poetry more than anything else. But when I first started out, um, the going rate for poetry in New York was 50 cents a line. Uh, And um, that meant that if you translated a sonnet... (laughs) You made fourteen dollars. Everyone's calculating in their heads. Uh, seven, seven dollars. Seven dollars. Oh, I, well, you see how good yeah. my arithmetic is. You made fourteen dollars. You, you can only dream of fourteen dollars. <laughs> I'm glad you're there, Danny. Uh, you ought to see my checkbook. Um, um, so you made seven dollars, and perhaps you spent two or three weeks working on the poem. And no matter how many vows of poverty you've taken in your life, uh, this was simply impossible. So it is more economical, uh, uh, more efficient uh, to translate prose. What what do you get from translating poetry that you don't get from prose? Well, I have discovered um, that very artful prose gives me the same pleasure that poetry does. And I mean prose that is written uh, with the same criteria as poetry. Garcia Marquez, for example, I think is one of the stunning writers of the 20th century. He writes absolutely beautiful prose. And when I say it's poetic, I don't mean it's beautiful. What I mean is that words are chosen with absolutely stringent care. Every word is exactly right, and those exactly right words are put together in a beautifully rhythmic way that creates phrases and sentences and paragraphs um, that have a very dynamic pulse under them. And that's the pleasure that I get out of poetry, is... is, uh, apprehending that, perceiving that, and then figuring out a way to bring that into English, into another language, into another system. And um, 
Garcia Marquez is writing, for example, and Cervantes, too, who is, as I'm sure you all know, the, one of the truly extraordinary writers in the Western tradition. Um, he, he gives me that same pleasure. Is there, is there any sense in which you describe this as artful prose, a prose where everything is very careful and precise and well-chosen? Is there any sense in which that is easier to translate because at least you know that you have a sense that there is a reason things are not arbitrary, it's not careless? Uh, well, it's easier because it's never dull. It, it, it's Bad writing is very boring. One of the th- I, I think bad and boring go together. And it becomes very tedious to deal with writing that is second rate. It is, for, it is for me. I don't want to spend time on it. Let me ask you about Don Quixote, because of all of the crazy things you could have agreed to do, the, fir- the first line in Spanish of Don Quixote is... Um, en un lugar de la mancha de cuyo nombre no quiero acordarme, and then it goes on. Which is the, the most famous thing that anyone has ever written in Spanish. Indeed. How do you... I mean, what do you do? How do you start? How do you, how do you presume? I mean, how do you take a line presume. like that and go... and look at that and go, right, well, today I'm going to take that this line and I'm going to embark on... Well, I was talking about this the other day. Uh, as a matter of fact, I engage... I engaged in magical thinking. And my magical thinking was that if I could figure out how to do that line in English the next thousand pages would simply fall into place. <laughs> uh, Just polish it off over the weekend. Uh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And so um, I spent, uh, I'm not quite sure how long, ten days, two weeks, saying the Spanish over and over again and then beginning to say the English. And I was doing it out loud because, as I, I have said before, uh, our eyes forgive everything and our ears forgive nothing. So I was listening to how the Spanish went and then how the English went. And um, I was doing this on the street. You know, people were getting out of my way because this mad woman was coming down the sidewalk muttering in several languages to herself. Um, and then it fell into place. And... and it began somewhere in La Mancha in a place whose name I do not care to remember. That's just what I said. I said, hoopla, I've got it. I've got it. That's, I was really... Even as we speak, someone out there is is figuring out it was the best of times, it was the worst of times in Polish. (laughs) And so I, I thought this is wonderful. I have solved the problem of lugar, which in Spanish has a double meaning. It can mean a place and it can mean a village. Uh, I repeated, I echoed the sound of no quiero acordarme with I do not care to remember. I said, oh, this is really good. Well, of course... <laughs> Two days later, it, you were done. The, the, next, <laughs> the next thousand pages did not always go like silk. And there were times when I thought I must have been mad to to take this on because it's impossible. How do I bridge the gap 
between now and 400 years ago? And how do I, how do, I do that? But uh, Cervantes is very powerful, and he brought me along. He, he, I followed after him. You said something earlier about the phrase you used was entering into the mind of the writer. How do you do that with a man who's been dead for 400 years, about whom we know what we know, but that's it? Yeah, well, you know, uh, when I, and what I, I don't mean that I study the biography of the author. I, I don't mean that. I really don't need to know anything about the author. I'll say it again. The only thing I need to know is what the author wrote. That's what he or she wanted me to know, wanted us to know. Mm-hmm. And so um, <clears throat> I listen as hard as I can to the writing. And... Um, I know I keep talking about this as if it were a a completely oral process, A-U-R-A-L, but this really is true. I, you have to hear, I mean, I have to try to hear the author and then do what Ralph Mannheim, the, the translator from German, said when he said, translators are like actors who speak the author's lines the way the author would if the author could speak English. And so this is what I really attempt to do. So the fact that Cervantes uh, died in uh, 1616 um, doesn't make it more difficult to enter, to get inside him, than uh, Garcia Marquez. Because it's there, because what you have is this thousand is, page is text. The, the text. And I, I don't, text is a jargony word, mm. but it's nice, it's short, and... Uh, and, and this is to do with voice, then. Because you said that those 1,000 pages didn't rush past, but you did them faster than, you know, 10 days for that first line. So you did accelerate beyond that first line, which means there is something... You get something, right? You get Although the there rhythm were, or a... There, there were days when I thought I would never get off of certain pages. There were certain pages that took me days to translate. And I thought, here I am on page 376 and I am never ever going to get to 377 <laughs> never never so there were and those, those are the days you go and see a movie that's right then I say right. done I'm out of here I can't I, I, I can't spend any more time your your Quixote is not of course the first um did you read, did you look at previous ones? No, I didn't. No, I... Sorry, I was going to... The book go right ahead. Um, it's being nice. No, I, uh, I read only one translation of Quixote, and that was Samuel Putnam's, and that was when I was a teenager, which was the first yeah. time I had read Quixote. Uh, and after that, I think I've read it I had read it perhaps ten times, but it was always in Spanish. And uh, as a student and as a teacher, I was reading the Quixote in Spanish. Uh, so I had, um, I thought about that. I mean, there are, I think, are something like 20 translations of the mm-hmm. Quixote into English, beginning with the first one that was ever done, the very first translation of the Quixote into any language was the translation into English 
by Thomas Shelton, and that was done in 1611, I think. And the first part of the Quixote was published in 1605. Mm -hmm. So that's very fast. That Mm -hmm. that translation was done Mm -hmm. very quickly. That's the one they think Shakespeare knew, by the way. Mm -hmm. Where Cardinio came from. Where they thought that Shakespeare, it's been thought that Shakespeare intended to write a play about one of the episodes in the Quixote. He either wrote it and the manuscript was lost or he never got around to it. In any event, I forget now what you asked me, Danny. Previous translations. Oh, previous translations. So I I thought about that and I decided not to read any of them um, because I wanted to keep my ear clear. I I didn't want anybody else's language Mm -hmm. uh, in my ear. Uh, since I had been doing mostly contemporary work prior to the Quixote, uh, reading other people's translations was never an issue for me. Um, but what about something like, I mean, you've been translating Garcia Marquez since Love in the Time of Cholera, but there was a translator, Greg Rabassa, before that, and the same is true about Vargas Llosa. So when you started those writers, did you have a sense of them having an English voice already. Had you read Rabassa's Garcia Marquez, for example? Uh, I yeah, I did. But I I read uh, Rabassa's uh, translation of Hundred Years of Solitude, but I had read Hundred Years of Solitude in Spanish too. Right. Um, so your so your writing of Garcia Marquez in English wasn't. You're not you're not trying to mimic an English voice that exists for no, you already. No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. So I I translated the Quixote with. Um, without checking the other translations. And I finished part one in about a year. And um, and then I did a short erotic novel, which prepped me for part two. <laughs> and Like a, a palate cleanser. Uh, that's between. right. It was, it, it was the sorbet between <laughs> courses. And, um, such a weird image. Now, <laughs> it's such a weird image. Now that we've that anyway, go ahead. Um, <laughs> And then for the, part, the, the second book, I thought, well, maybe I can see what some other people have done. Mm. Now, now that I, I feel as if I've established my voice for the translation. And um, my sons had both uh, read the Quixote in school, and when they left home, of course, they left their textbooks behind. So I had uh, the translations that they had used in school. Uh, in my in my apartment, and um, I thought, okay, I'm going to use these translations as another dictionary. And when I'm not certain of a phrase, I'll see what other people did and, and so forth. Well, as it turned out, um, these two translators never agreed with each other, uh, and so they were no help to me at all. And I abandoned it. I, I gave it up. Um, so no, I haven't read any other translations except for the, the know, Putnam, Putnam, and then checking into these other ones. When you're when you're finding a you're finding a voice or making a voice for someone like Cervantes, this sounds like a really dumb question. Is is this what English is this? Is this 17th century English? Is this 21st century English? Is it neither? Is it American? Is it what what is this language you're making? Because you can't write. 17th century Spanish, but it'll be in Spanish. Uh, right. Well, I can't write 17th century English. I mean, am I 
in the 21st century to pretend I'm William Shakespeare, hmm. who was a contemporary of Cervantes? Hmm. Am I going to be John Donne in his <laughs> sermons? What English am I going to use if I pretend that I'm a 17th century person? Okay. So I thought about this very hard. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult issue when you deal with older literature, which is how do you bring that into English? And this was my thought process. Cervantes was absolutely pushing the envelope when he wrote that book. He was like Captain Kirk, going where no man had gone before. (laughs) He was creating a language that no one had used before. He created literary Spanish Mm. um, in a a definitive way. I know those of you who know about Spanish literature will tell me about works in the uh, 16th century prior to Cervantes, and I do know about them. But he created neologisms, he created turns of phrase, he created a literary language. Mm-hmm. He, he was as avant-garde as any person could be in the early 17th century. He was doing something that had never been done before. He created a genre, he created the novel, and he created the language to write that novel in. The idea of trying to create an archaic English for this man who was centuries ahead not only of his time, Mm -hmm. but of our time, because nobody has matched him. Mm -hmm. Nobody, not even my beloved Garcia Marquez, can match Cervantes. Um, I thought, no, I, I, I have to put that consideration aside. I am not going to deal with it. Now, uh, uh, having said that, I did for the narrative voice use a fairly elevated diction. And, um, but I didn't for the dialogues, uh, uh, for the characters. And their voices, I mean, I hope, it's apparent when you read it that their voices change. Uh, Quixote, who is a very well-educated and very well-read man, speaks differently from Sancho, who's illiterate. Uh, and, and so their levels of language are entirely different. And that's true throughout the whole uh, cast of characters in, in the Quixote. But are you finding then... I mean, the word equivalent is quite difficult. But if you're trying to have a character who's well-educated, a character who's not, a character who's this, are you finding an equivalent existing English? And is there a danger then that you make this kind of character sound like they're from Baltimore and this kind of character sound like they're from... from I mean, how do you sound like you're from Baltimore? I don't know how you do that. We've all seen The Wire. I'm sure the it's, Wire, I'm sure yeah, it's well, exactly. I'm sure it's, it's basically that, like a documentary. I'm sure it's exactly uh, uh, true. The Wire requires its own translator. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a language that is uh, fairly impenetrable. Yeah. But that's kind of what I mean. The, 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 oh, what, there is a danger of, of the, the more sort of specific the, the vernacular you're using, the well, more it sounds like you're in okay. specifically uh, in Glasgow or specifically well, in what, The Wire what, or whatever it is. What can I say? Quixote, when he speaks, never uses contractions. And that was, I mean, everybody uses contractions. 
at least in the United States. I, you, you use contractions here, right? We do not. You do not. We do not. <laughs> we could not. We would not. You must not. And you cannot. You cannot. Absolutely. Uh, so yep. Quixote never uses contractions. Mm. Um, other upper-class and well-educated characters do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is to distinguish Quixote from the others. Mm. When his madness overtakes him and he starts speaking in the archaic language of the 15th century, which is the language of the novels of chivalry, then I go into hast and hath and dust. And Someone in the UK pointed out that I got all confused and I, I used the wrong forms. And then somebody else so said, "Yeah, but that's it? Would, uh, would be one of us, wouldn't it?" Uh, no, no. But it was very funny because then somebody said, "But of course he's speaking the language he doesn't really know, so of course he would make the mistake." I thought, "Saved." How smart is this translator? Because <laughs> even even the mistakes are, are three steps ahead of everyone. Yeah, no, no. It was it was it was you know one of those times when I thought, "Oh, you know," I could hear the. Guardian angel's wings above my head. <laughs> it's um, extraordinarily. We've had forty-five minutes. Um, I am not going to talk for another forty-five minutes, though. Actually, I want you just to go away, and I can keep talking to Edie. But unfortunately, I, I'm supposed to share her with you. Unfortunately, um, I am going to ask just one more question, then I will let you uh, have a go and ask her some questions. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And I just want to ask, again, a, a sort of big and general one, which is in the title of your book. The book is called Why Translation Matters. Why does translation matter? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me the origin of the title. Which I why and, the, does and then the origin of the title, of course, is going, going to be my next question. But first, the, why, why? Why translation yeah. matters. Well, I could start to read the book to you, Danny, and that, that would answer the question. Translation matters for several reasons. One is that it expands the language that you translate into. Each translation, and, and let me speak about the languages that I use. So when you move from Spanish into English, English is increased because you are introducing concepts and phrasing, phraseology. Is that there a lot? <laughs> I think we'll find out. <laughs> uh, you're, you're introducing concepts and ideas that had never existed in English before. And it is a way of growing the language. Um, uh, that I find quite remarkable. Uh, the other, uh, another reason that translation matters is, as I've said on other occasions, it allows writers 
to apprentice themselves to other writers uh, from around the world and from different times. And I have to do my William Faulkner uh, uh, line. William Faulkner, who somebody described as the best-known Latin American writer in English, claimed that he read Don Quixote once a year. And if you read Quixote and if you look at Faulkner, you can certainly see the connection. There's a real connection uh, between them. Uh, William Faulkner was every Latin American writer's favorite author. And certainly uh, he was Garcia Marquez's favorite not only English language author, but for many years, the most important author in uh, Garcia Marquez's uh, mind. And the influence of Faulkner on Garcia, Lor- uh, I'm sorry, Garcia Marquez is huge. You just need to look at some Faulkner and some Garcia Marquez to see it. I don't think Toni Morrison would write the way she writes or Salman Rushdie would write the way he writes without Garcia Marquez. Mm-hmm. And I am willing to bet money that all of these people read these books in translation. I know Garcia Marquez read Faulkner in the Spanish translation. I'll bet you Salman Rushdie read Garcia Marquez in English translation. That wonderful line of influence would have been impossible without translation. So uh, this is a way of allowing authors to communicate with one another uh, across time and across languages. And that is a very important gift I think. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. Your turn. Um, questions? Uh, right at the back. Hello. Hang on oh, a there's, minute. There's a microphone. Oh, if you just wait for the microphone to get to you. Um, hello. First of all, it's an honor to meet you in person. I've read your translation of Don Quixote, and for me, it put the book into perspective. Uh, although it has been translated in my language, my native language, I'm Greek, but I chose to write it in English. And it was much better than the Greek translations as well. Um, I'm very interested in what you're saying about the review of translations and the point you made about uh, book critics and the fact that they never mentioned the translator. Um, when I lived in Greece, I was a book reviewer and critic, and I'm also a translator by my profession. Um, and I had the audacity of reviewing a translation for a major newspaper in Greece. Um, it took me nine months to uh, cross-read the original and the translation uh, and make the work that was necessary to write a very fair review. Um, the comments I got from colleagues were that perhaps I shouldn't be so picky on the <laughs> translation. And as a result, I decided to present a paper on how um, often do book reviews in three major um, 
papers in Greece, we have the Athens Review of Books, for example, that takes after the New York and the London Review. Um, and I chose four publications and did a research for a year to see how, how many times does the name of the translator even come up in the review. Uh, and I presented that paper in front of translators and publishers, and the results were disheartening. Hmm. Uh, however, because I do follow the press here, uh, I think that um, the translator is a bit more recognized in the English-speaking press. But my question is, um, how open do you think translators are to review? And do you think that a reviewer who spends uh, a certain amount of time doing that cross-reference between the original and the translation mm. should be a translator themselves? Mm. And also, another thing, uh, the feedback I got was that reviewers don't have the time to do that. Mm because they need to submit the review of the book. Nine, nine months. If you, if you took nine months to write every review, we would certainly... Yes, I, I took, I, really I took on the book and I didn't realise how bad the translation was and I right. want to be very fair in the points I made okay. because I have studied translation myself, I have a degree, right. and I thought it was my duty as a translator to do that, but um, okay. it's, a, it's a very tricky thing, I think, to Thank do you. a review of a book. Can, can it be done? Uh, well, I, I am not quite certain whether a review, the reviewer needs to know the original language. I'm not sure whether the purpose of a review of a translation is to check the accuracy of the translation. I'm not certain about that. Um, there is one reviewer in the United States who writes for the New Yorker, James Wood. Um, and I was always impressed by his review of the new translations of Russian literature. Uh, um, I never remember their names. The husband's Richard name Pevere, is Pevere, Richard Pevere. Right. And he talked about the spectrum on which translators operate, moving from very close reading of the text to a more open and freer reading of the text. He talked about this in a very intelligent way and talked about the choices that these two translators had made in the translation of Dostoevsky. Um, he wasn't comparing a phrase of Dostoevsky's to the translation, however. So it wasn't an accuracy check. It was a discussion of the approach that the translator had taken to the text. Um, I am practically certain it didn't take him nine months to, to, mm -hmm. to do that. But that is, it strikes me, a very intelligent approach to reviewing a translation. It acknowledges the fact of the translation and it discusses the aesthetic of the translation. So I, I hope I've responded to... Uh, I mean, you've raised a, mm -hmm. a very uh, thorny issue. But I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not hearing... But presumably, presumably also there is, there is sort of a minimum that one can do. 
as a reviewer if you don't have the if you don't have the original language and even if you're not really going to be talking about the translation as a process you can at a minimum have some understanding of what the translator is doing so that if you are talking about the elegance and poise of the prose you have some idea that this wasn't actually only one person's creation that it was no. someone else uh, responsible for it the gentleman at the side there and then and then and then there and then um, thanks very much. I, I had a, quite a strong response to this suggestion that there is an attack on, on the, the process of translation or on the, um, the, the, the function of the translator. And uh, I was kind of wondering what it is, what is, the, what is this attack? And I suppose I had a response to it because... I kind of believe that there is an attack without knowing precisely you know, why it exists, what it is that's being attacked. So I was sort of sitting here trying to think about why should there be such an attack. It seems to be part of the kind of world that we're in, that there should be such a thing. And as I was thinking about it, it seems to me that what is uh, the, 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 the kind of underlying motive for the attack must be something to do with the wish not to be aware of what is lost because there sort of always is a loss. In every translation, something is lost. It's never kind of finished. But something is gained. Something is gained and something is lost. But if we don't bear in mind the presence of the translator, then we don't have to be aware of... Obviously, we are aware of what's gained because we have the book in front of us. What we're not aware of is... What is lost? I, I have two responses to that. One is that we have to blame the Italians and that man who said so many centuries ago, traduttore e traditore, the translator is a traitor, and I don't believe it for a second. And one of the reasons I don't believe it is what I was saying before about the gain in the language you translate into, the expansion of um, the second language as a result of the translation. And then you can blame the Americans because Robert Frost allegedly said that poetry is the thing that gets lost in translation, and I don't buy that for a second. I think some of the resentment of the translator may be the result of romanticism and the belief that only perfectly original work is of value. And... Um, it's the original genius, the individual creative genius. Uh, thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, and prior to that, uh, uh, nobody even thought about originality mm. prior to the Romantic period. And uh, very fine poets filled their collected works with endless translations. And, um, and nobody gave it a second thought. Mm. So there's a concatenation of circumstances that explain why... There's a suspicion of translation. There's a, a hesitation about it. But it seems to me uh, crucial, especially in the English-speaking world, that translation be embraced, because I will quote to you the terrible statistic that in the English-speaking world, and that means the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Ireland, New Zealand... Australia, and other parts of the English-speaking world. 
only 3% of the books published each year are literary translations. And in the rest of the industrialized world, the percentage is much higher, say 45, 50, 55, 60% of the books published each year are literary translations. Some of it, as I have said before, is the result of the hegemony of English now, which is a dominant language in the world. But it's not going to be dominant for very long, I don't think. Uh, So everybody just has to wait until the next language comes down the pike. That will be the dominant language. Uh, So the the presence of English may explain the higher percentage, but I don't think it explains it entirely. Thank you. Um, There was a gentleman here. Our our numbers are getting better in this country, by the way. Oh, good. How, how, where have you gotten to? Um, of the percentage of literature translated, uh, in 2000, it was going up until 2010 are the newest numbers we have, and it was 4.5%. Oh, that is... Which is right. not huge, but it's bigger than three, you know, moving in the right direction. I have but a anyway. feeling that at home it's going down. I, 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 I have a sense that it may be 2% now in the U.S., but... That went front. Right. When you're translating a Spanish writer, be it Cervantes or Carmen Lafayette or Góngora, compared, say, with a Latin American, um, Vargas Llosa, García Márquez, what differences do you pick up in terms of what challenges or what difficulties in terms of nuances, language, mindset, etc.? I, I don't find um, a perceptible difference uh, between Latin America and Spain. <laughs> Obviously, each country has its own lexicon, and each region has its own lexicon. But my favorite story about vocabulary, uh, if I can deflect from your question a little bit, is when a couple of years ago I did a book by uh, the late Carlos Fuentes, uh, which in a good portion of it dealt with Mexican street gangs. Uh, the, The gangs that originated in Central America came up through Mexico and into California and are now dominating the gang scene in Los Angeles and control the drug traffic and so forth. The language, the slang that was used was incomprehensible. I had no idea what most of it meant. Uh, Fortunately, there's the urban dictionary that you can get online, and I was able to pick up some of it uh, uh, through that. But there was still at least 50% of the slang used that I really didn't understand. So I happened to see him when he was in New York, and I said, Carlos, what do you do in your spare time that you know this language? Who are you hanging (laughs) out with? (laughs) And his answer was remarkable. He said, well, you know, when I was a young man, I was in the bars a lot, so I was hearing this language. And he said, the rest of it I invented. He said, so you go ahead and invent it. I said, oh, all right. And so the way I invented it was to sit near adolescent boys on the subway and to listen to the way they spoke and to the rhythms of their language and the kinds of words they used. And uh, that's how I invented uh, the other 50% of that language. So there's, there's a lexical difference. You know, if you go from Colombia to Argentina, there are different ways of speaking, but uh, 
I don't find a um, a serious difference between peninsular and and American writers. Where does your Spanish come from? How how did you come to have Spanish? Uh, I studied it in school, and this was Spanish from where? Oh, Spanish from where? I don't know. My my I studied Spanish in high school, and I was taught. Uh, a Castilian pronunciation, which seemed useless to me, uh, since nobody in Latin America used it, and so I consciously made the switch from Peninsular to uh, Latin American. So I stopped using vosotros. I stopped using the second person plural, and I didn't lisp the c anymore or the z. Um, but that was a conscious choice, kind of a political choice on, on, on <laughs> to, my to part. To align yourself with... Right. I mean, America, after Americans. all, is for yeah. Americans. And so we, uh, <laughs> I, I decided to join up with the other Americans. In the front. Um, just want to say thank you for a wonderful conversation. Um, it's oh, been welcome. really interesting. Um, I was just wondering if... Um, you could talk to us a little bit about retranslation and why is it that we often return to classic works like Cervantes and, and retranslate them? Why does that happen? What is it about translation that means it can be redone and we want to redo it? It's, it's a great mystery. Uh, works, original works of art never age. Nobody ever says, oh, we'd better rewrite Sophocles because it's um, too old. Never. Nobody thinks of rewriting uh, Chaucer. But the translations age. I, 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 it's very curious. And I think if a translation is viable for 50 years or 75 years, it really has lasted a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know it's a fact, and I have no explanation mm-hmm. for it. But it seems that each generation or two needs a new translation of a classic. Um, so that's something to think about. I have no answer for it, but it's, it is a fact. I know a playwright who says that he needs, he translates plays as well, but he says that he, his aim is for the translation to be absolutely perfect for tonight. <laughs> if it's out of date tomorrow, that's fine. It has to work for for, 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 now. for this audience in this precise this precise place. Uh, at the back, so I'm going to make you run at the back and then here on the aisle. Thanks. Hello. Um, I, I was very struck by what you said about the process in which you go about translating. Uh, that um, Firstly, you do very much a rough draft the secondly, you are um, often missing out bits that you're not sure of. Secondly, you do a, a kind of more detailed second draft revision, paying much more attention to detail. And thirdly, you reach a point at which you feel if you tinker with it anymore, you'll kill it. And that seems to me exactly the process that a novelist goes through when they're writing a novel. Um, well, certainly is in my case. So I would be interested to know if you had actually taken that on and think that there's really very little difference between the one and the other. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the last part of what you said. You think maybe there isn't so much difference between translating 
uh, say, translating a novel and writing a novel, because actually that process of refinement up to a point at which you have to stop because you'll only make it worse. There are, there are similarities. Well, I, I, think, I think in that regard they're identical. Uh, I, I do think that translators are writers, and they have the same writerly sense of what works and what doesn't work and when they've gotten it and when they have to keep pushing at it, it being the phrasing or the the paragraph. Which makes the kind of secondary status of of the translator all the more unacceptable because it's, it is a collaboration. You are making me smile. Thank you. <laughs> good. That's, good. That's a wonderful mm. remark. Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, on the aisle here. Thank you. I, um, I wanted to ask a question about voices and sort of getting into the author's voice. Is it any different when you know the author personally? And is there any help in knowing what their actual physical voice sounds like? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, the presence of a writer, say, like Fuentes or Garcia Marquez in a text it's very subtle and, and very hard to uh, pinpoint. I think, uh, I don't think it's possible to identify every character, say, in a novel with the author, although the author is in every one of those characters in a way that I cannot pinpoint. It's, it's an intuitive presence, I think, rather than a physical one. And uh, within a novel, the voice, there are so many voices that even if I know what Garcia Marquez sounds like, um, that doesn't help a whole lot. Does it help when you're, when you're doing the, as maybe, eighth or tenth book by this writer, though? Not necessarily to know what their spoken voice sounds like, but to have, there must be some things which you've, you've come to know how to deal with and you come to recognize from the ninth, eighth, and seventh book. Or does it get, does it I, get I, easier? I don't, I don't know how to answer that, Danny. Mm. I, um, I mean, is there a difference then between starting a book by a writer you've never worked on before and doing the next, I guess you're also having done several no, books at all? No, there isn't. Right. No, there isn't. Um, I really try to approach um, each text... Uh, with as much joy as those folks <laughs> outside are, are bring Someone's to it. Someone translating Gatti Marcus again. <laughs> uh, I, I try to bring a, um, a fresh point of view. In other words, I try to pretend that I've never read anything by this person before mm-hmm. and just deal with each book on its own terms. Right. Here on the end. And then... Yes, I, I wanted to come back to the relationship with the uh, living writer. I mean, I was wondering if you felt freer when you were translating a book by a dead writer, and and how. I mean, I I I used to be a translator, and I always felt that I was treading a very fine line. That if I asked too many questions, 
um, the writer would start worrying, you know, why is this woman translating my book? Uh, <laughs> but then there were times when it was useful to ask questions. So I would be, you already talked about your um, experience with um, Carlos Suentes, but I'd be curious to know in general how you work with writers. Uh, usually I don't talk to the author about the book until I'm finished. Um, and I make use of Lord Google. Uh, uh, my son says that Google prefers to be called Lord Google. So I, I, make, I make use of Lord Google dictionaries and friends who come from the same country as the author to figure out certain terminology. And almost always at the end, um, uh, there are certain moments where I'm not really positive what the intention is. And those are the questions that I ask. I, I, I don't ask for a translation. I ask for uh, what the point of this is. What's the intention? Um, and they are, you know, very generous and very responsive, fortunately. I was sorry I couldn't do that with Cervantes. I, I really was, and with Gongora. Um, but I don't know how to channel, so I could not get in touch with. Were there particular things? If you know, if he showed up now, are there particular things you really want to ask him? I can't think. I, have, I need to have the book in yeah. front of me. Well, we'll get him later. It's fine. Uh, gentleman in the front here, and then the lady in the second row. Thank you. Uh, do we? Uh, you mentioned Frost and the translating of uh, poetry. Now, as first-time readers in English, do we experience the same joy and emotion when we read a translation, or is it a different joy and emotion from the original readers and writers? I Thank hope you. it's the, comparable. The, I think the point, the intention... No, I don't want to generalize it. Let me say it personally. My desire when I translate is to allow an English-speaking reader to experience what a Spanish-speaking reader experiences. So if I succeed, then that happens. The, even in the, reading the translation produces the similar kind of emotion in the reader as reading the original. Uh, but some translations succeed better than others. Thank you. Uh, Living the second row over there. Your idea of dual authorship sounds so right to me. Uh, it's it's hard for me to imagine that, that any uh, reputable or known translator would disagree with this idea, but I'm struggling to reconcile your ideas with those that I read of Nabokov one time. He He seemed... Okay, I see yeah. by your look... He seemed to. When he, when he talked about yeah. the translation of uh, Eugene O'Negan. Well, yeah, exactly. He wanted it to be so literal, just word. So I want to know what you think about that. Oh, well, it's in I the have, book, and it's really funny what she thinks of Nabokov. So. <laughs> I, I think that uh, he was one of the genius novelists of our time and a wretched translator. <laughs> uh, but then someone told me that he had done that version of Onyegin as a pony for one of his Russian language classes. That this was a, you know what I mean by a pony? A, a crib. A crib for uh, um, his students so that they could follow 
the Russian with a uh, almost a word-for-word translation. Mm. I don't think he did that. I think he had a very strange notion of what the function of the translator was and what the purpose of translation was. And his... Um, so I, I mean, the, his translation of Onegin is is unreadable. I I've tried, and I, you know, I that was one of the times I closed the book and went to the movies because I, I couldn't I couldn't deal with it. Uh, over here, um, I was just wondering if the a consciousness of the differences between American English and other Englishes ever enters into the process if you're creating an English version of a masterpiece for the English-speaking world? Do you ever...? Well, there are certain British publishers who don't believe Americans really speak English, that we, uh, we speak something else. Um, but I'm on the side of William Carlos Williams who said, I write American. I cannot get out of my skin. I cannot pretend to be anything other than an American in the 21st century. And probably my English is East Coast, Manhattan, Upper West Side English. Um, But I, I can't change that. Uh, how Which is why it's completely unreadable for the rest of us. That's right. The rest of us who are not the upper west side. I, I struggle through this book. I think, what language this woman is writing? But uh, but I've had arguments with British publishers who were using translations I had done in the U.S. and wanted to change the language. And I was um, I, I can't even think of the word. Enraged is mild. <laughs> is, is mild. And I had said, you can change the spelling all you like. If you want to spell organize I-S-E, you go right ahead. And if you want to spell glamour, O-U-R, go right ahead. But you cannot touch the words without my permission. And um, it, it, it was a terrible battle. But we finally won it. There is... I hesitate to disagree with you I think probably about anything but I'm going to just slightly oh, go ahead, slightly <laughs> have you know witnesses and stuff it's fine so, um, the, the same thing happens the other way around when, when we translate into into this English we'll get publishers in the US who will change things but to some extent I understand that if I'm translating a, a novel from from Angola or from France or wherever and the character takes a mobile out of their pocket to make a call I understand that that would be unnecessarily distracting. I don't mean that readers in Arkansas won't know what it means, but it would be distractingly particular. Is that not fair? Yeah, so, but what can you do? What? what? But see, I wouldn't mind what? if a publisher said to me, we're not going to rewrite the book, but assuming they ask permission, obviously, but you keep calling it a mobile, we're going to call it the cell phone, it's not a big deal. This, this pavement thing, we're going to make a sidewalk... Yeah, but you see, that's a consultation, which right. gives you of the course, option of, of saying, yes. yeah, sure, I don't care whether you call it a mobile or a cell phone. Yeah. It, 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 it doesn't matter. And if you want to call it a pavement, that's fine. If you want to call it a sidewalk, it's fine. It doesn't matter. But doing it without permission I understand. is yeah. um, um, 
impossible, it seems to me. And one and of they the, wouldn't do it to a novelist writing in that language. They wouldn't go do it to a no, novelist writing in English. No, they wouldn't. And and I had said to this, uh, as as Cervantes would said this, would have said this publisher whose name I do not care to remember. Uh, I said, you know, I spent my life reading uh, D. H. Lawrence and Virginia Woolf and Kingsley Amis and. Uh, I didn't need to have the language Americanized. The words I didn't know, I looked up, or I figured out, uh, you figured them out uh, uh, in context. And uh, that's a real intrusion in, into the integrity, the aesthetic integrity of the piece of writing. Um, and as the gentleman had said earlier, uh, translators are writers. And I at least have a sense of um, certain sense of ownership uh, over what I've written, and so I'm willing to talk to people. And in the instance you had brought up, uh, yeah, it doesn't really matter to me whether you call that phone a mobile or a, or a cell. But I need to have the option of of, of uh, making that decision. Uh, okay, we have time for... Yes, we have a couple more questions. Yes, lady in blue. Just there, just a <coughs> I'm losing my voice. <coughs> Hi there. Um, I just wondered, um, as an author, um, have you... Apologies for my ignorance. Have you been translated? And I wondered how that experience was for you. Have I been translated? Yes. <laughs> Actually, yes, because <laughs> why translation matters was translated into Spanish. It was, I, it was a bizarre experience for me. <laughs> and, um, now you see what they go through, you, these poor authors. I tell you, I, I looked at the translation and I said, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's through a mirror darkly. It's, it's my voice, but in Spanish. So it's a very strange experience. Is it different from going back to the... the, the Quote the, the, the Manhattan quote about if the writer could write in English, this is what he would have said. So if you had been writing this book in Spanish, do you recognize this as your Spanish? Um, in, in, not completely, but, but a lot of, of your the voice that you recognize. A lot of the yeah. time it, it would have been. Yeah, I didn't know the translator, so. so and we they didn't ask you lots of awkward questions. No, not, not a single one. W- were you annoyed they didn't ask you to translate it? <laughs> Uh, no, I wasn't, because I translated something into Spanish only once, and I swore I would never do that again. I, I think you... I mean, I at least can translate only into the language I dream in. It has to be the language of my unconscious, the one that um, I live with, have lived with my whole life. Uh, so, no, I would never take on translating anything into Spanish. Uh, one more. We have time for one more question. Oh, right here in the front. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if there are any novels in Spanish that have been translated that not by you that you really wish you had got there first and you'd been the translator of those novels. Uh, yeah, there are. Uh, I would love to do Juan Rufo's um, uh, novel the Mexican um, writer, the late Mexican writer. I would love to do Pedro Paramo, which is just one of the stunning 
stunning yeah. novel. Get in line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody. <laughs> want, I, as soon as you read Spanish, you want to yeah. do Pedro Paramo. Yeah. First of all, it's short. <laughs> and secondly, it is absolutely original. It is one of the most unusual original books. I would love to do some Borges. I would love to translate Borges. And I would love to translate uh, Neruda. But I don't know if I'm ever going to do any of those things. Um, what about things that haven't been translated? Do you have a sense of exciting writers who haven't yet found their way into English? It, or, or, know, or are we slowly kind of... Oh, no. Oh no. You're, the, you're like the cab drivers. Are there really things in Spanish that are worth reading? <laughs> yeah, there are. Um, no, but I... I when I'm not work, what I tend to read is contemporary um, fiction in English. Uh, I read American and uh, British writers. Mm. Uh, I really am interested in knowing what is possible in English, and each writer brings a whole different take to the way contemporary English works. Mm. Uh, so I spend much more time reading literature in English than literature in Spanish. It's a failing of mine, but it, you know I only have a certain amount of time, and if I have to watch The Wire, I can't possibly... <laughs> and The Borgias, which yeah. I'm in the middle of now. Uh, well, I'm glad uh, your priorities are absolutely... Uh, absolutely. <laughs> first things first. Things. Yes. Uh, if there's any time left at the end of the day when you're done with The Wire, you could read a Spanish book. But that's right. But exactly. you've read all the good ones already, so you know why. Why would you bother? Now? No, that's that's your that's your statement, not <laughs> mine. I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Um, this was uh, was a great treat for me. I hope it was a great treat for you, having you here. Please join me in giving a very warm thank you. To the thank you. Um, I'd also like to add my thanks to um, Danny and Edie. It's been a great privilege um, to enter into the mind of such a distinguished writer and translator this evening. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, as you may know, this event is part of our World Literature Series. I just wanted to mention quickly that the next uh, event in the series is on the 14th of June. We'll be looking at Japan um, welcoming the Japanese writer and editor Masashi Matsui, who will be in conversation with the literary translator Michael Emmerich. But tonight, um, I'd encourage you to stay around for a while. We have lots of books on sale by those lucky writers who have been translated by Edith Grossman and Daniel Hahn. So please do buy books, get them signed, have another drink, um, and ask any questions you haven't had a chance to ask. But um, finally, I'd like to thank you, the audience, for coming, uh, Daniel Hahn and Edie Grossman. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.